TikTok was not the only thing discussed on Capitol Hill last week. Good old-fashioned budget hearings also broke out all over. They revealed a lot about hoped-for spending priorities in 2024. We get a roundup now from Bloomberg government congressional reporter Jack Fitzpatrick. Jack, good to have you on. Thanks for having me. And you went to several hearings last week of budgets and tell us about some of the particulars that you heard and also maybe the context of this because of the debt ceiling question that seems to be intertwined here. Yeah, there there was a lot of big picture talk as well as a focus on details of agency requests. The, the big picture stuff is, you know, the Biden administration is asking for an increase in funding that Republicans don't like. Now, there are differences that they see for defense versus non-defense priorities. Biden asked for a greater increase for non-defense discretionary agency budgets than he did for the military there are Republicans in the House who, who say they want to cut spending, but that it would not primarily be focused on the military or veterans. Big picture, they want to attach spending caps, limits over maybe something like 10 years to a debt limit deal to say the, the House Republicans say we want to cut discretionary spending to the 2022 levels. It's about 130 or $40 billion cut from 2023 and then limit the growth to about 1% a year from then on. That, in a macro sense, is a big fight that they're going to have to have. And they're at the beginning of that. On some of the details, the State Department request is an interesting dividing line for some Republicans. The House Republicans are more skeptical about foreign aid, sending funds to Ukraine, overall the top line State Department and USAID funding level. Lindsey Graham, who's the top Senate Republican on that topic, said the House is going to be part of this, so we can't give you the 11% increase the State Department requested, but we'll do what we can. So you, you may have a bit of a debate actually playing out between House Republicans and Senate Republicans on that in particular. But really, you go through the list and a lot of the non-defense stuff is a bright red dividing line between the conservative Republicans in Congress and the Biden administration. There's no apparent talk or indication that sequestration should come back, could come back? It's not really the sequestration that was put in place after the 2011 debt limit fight. That came into place out of the super committee's failure and the the series of negotiations where they tried to get something much more ambitious to cut spending and then failed. Right now, what you're hearing instead of something like that is the Freedom Caucus has said, and a lot of Republicans seem to be on board with cutting discretionary spending to the fiscal 2022 level limiting the growth from there rather than a really, really steep cut. It would be a fairly steep cut, but not quite to the 2011 levels. And then looking at what unspent money from COVID bills they could rescind, stricter work requirements and stopping exemptions at the state level for work requirements for things like SNAP benefits. Really, the demands being made by Republicans are a little less ambitious than what you saw in 2011. It's probably a tougher debate, though, because they have such a narrow majority in the House. So it's it's a, still a dicey situation with the debt limit. But the, the spending cap stuff is a little bit more realistic than, you know, in 2011, you heard people calling for a, a constitutional amendment to balance the budget. They're not quite at that level right now. And on the military budget side, General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, was giving dire warnings about the fact that if we don't meet the Chinese threat now, then we'll end up doubling the defense budget down the line when some threat 
turns into action, perhaps. Yeah, they're getting pulled in a lot of different directions by Congress in response to the defense spending increase proposal. It's about a 3.3% increase that the Biden administration proposed. House Republicans have said they're not going to try to cut defense spending. There seems to be some diversity of opinion among House Republicans about whether that should be an increase, something more or less flatlined. They haven't really developed a clear stance on that. Senate Republicans, including people like Senator Graham and others, have said a strong defense number is a priority for them. So that, in addition to some of the foreign aid State Department stuff, is potentially a fight among Republicans. You know, meanwhile, you have progressives, uh, Barbara Lee in the House, who's interested in becoming a senator from California, raised this. It's, it's been a little quieter lately, but she, she said the, the progressive position from members like her is that they should cut $100 billion from the defense budget. There was some pushback even from OMB director Shalanda Young. This is an area where the most progressive sort of anti-defense spending progressives have probably lost the, the bulk of their party's support. And there's interest among the most mainstream sort of leadership aligned Democrats in at least some sort of increase in defense spending. We're speaking with Jack Fitzpatrick, congressional reporter with Bloomberg government. And did the inflation effect come up? Because, you know, Democrats that want to increase spending, they are in a tough political shape talking about one reason for that being inflation, because then they're seen as responsible for the inflation simply because of the fiscal policies and the monetary policies under the Biden administration. Yeah, that came up a lot. That is going to continue to sort of dominate the conversation around spending. The response from the Biden administration is, yes, we want an increase in discretionary spending. And there are some other things, you know, they want a revival of the expanded child tax credit. They uh, proposed about $2.9 trillion in deficit reducing tax increase measures for people making more than $400,000 a year, uh, uh, billionaires, minimum tax, that kind of thing. Those are not going to get bipartisan support in a divided Congress. That's obviously not going to happen. So the conversation has then sort of been shifted away from the either party's big ambitious goals for tax revenue and major spending cuts and has kind of been narrowed down to what do you do with the discretionary budget, which is not even half of the whole federal budget, but that's sort of the manageable thing that they could, they will have to have a deal on. So a lot of the lofty speech about the trajectory of the debt and deficit, it has come up, but really the negotiations are uh, in a practical sure. sense focused on a smaller part of the federal budget. I don't think they even believe it themselves when they say it. And the other question is, with the hearings happening, what sense is there that these will translate into actual bills that they'll vote on at some point and maybe avoid the usual problems at the end of the fiscal year? They're actually pretty ambitious about setting a schedule there. House Republicans came in and said, we have the majority. One of our top priorities is we are going to vote individually on each of our 12 appropriations bills. That may have even kind of scared the Senate into taking action. The Senate hasn't even been holding markups lately. They didn't hold markups last year. They marked up a couple bills a year before that, but they hadn't been doing floor votes. There was a bipartisan agreement recently among Senate appropriators that they are going to try not only to get going on markups, but they're going to try to have a bipartisan deal among themselves on the top line spending figures. 
and then start holding their markups. Uh, they said the beginning of the markup season, no later than Memorial Day. So get started in May, which would be a lot better than, you know, last year, they essentially the Senate Democrats put out their appropriations bills as like a press release at the end of July and didn't vote on it. So there's there's a lot of action there. And there there is some hope that you know, it'd be tough to get all 12 enacted by the September 30th deadline, but something like getting a couple of them done and then a CR for the rest would would be a somewhat realistic accomplishment that senators are pretty excited about. <laughs> and what's on the agenda for this upcoming week? More hearings, more uh, budgets? Yeah, a ton of hearings on the budget. There are going to be quite a few. There's a matter of weeks ahead of hearings in the Appropriations Committee and authorizing committees to review Almost every agency's budget is up for scrutiny in both chambers. I don't know if this will be in the week ahead or maybe in the a couple of weeks ahead, but as House Republicans are working on a budget resolution that technically is support, supposed to essentially start the, the spending process and would potentially serve as effectively an offer on the debt limit because it would outline their fiscal priorities, um, that is getting bumped a little bit. But House Republicans, meanwhile, are working on a more limited, focused on the debt limit offer, sort of a a list of bullet points that is the House Republican offer on the debt limit. We don't know exactly when that's coming out, but the budget chairman, Jody Arrington, said they're getting close to being able to get the whole conference on board and say this is our offer. Uh, So there's work a, a little bit longer on a budget resolution and a lot of these hearings, but also in the fairly near future, something on the debt limit from the House Republicans. Yeah, so maybe they could sing out their bullet points on TikTok and kind of bring it all around. I think they would be loath to do that, especially given the, the hearings that happened in the last week. Right. Jack Fitzpatrick is congressional reporter with Bloomberg Government. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, 
I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be 
impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.